So let's go to the Lord now. We'll ask his blessing on our time together, and then we'll have a Bible lesson. Heavenly Father, we appreciate the opportunity that you've given us tonight to worship you in prayer, to worship you in the fellowship around your word, uh, to worship you in fellowship amongst one another, and I do thank you for this. I, I would pray that as we go down this uh, pathway that you've put us on, that we would, we would ever keep before us the, the need that we have for you and the need that we have to pray to you and to pray to you on a consistent basis, not just for ourselves, but may we make uh, petitions and entreaties and thanksgivings and prayers on behalf of all men, uh, saved and unsaved, as you commanded through your uh, servant, the Apostle Paul. Now tonight I do pray that the Holy Spirit would give us um, a keen, uh, keen concentration as we uh, open this passage and delve into it. And I pray that you would be glorified by what happens here tonight. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles, if you have them with you, hopefully you do, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. The passage says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. A little bit of uh, review quickly as we begin a new chapter. The first and second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles because Paul wrote them to pastors or shepherds. The Greek term poimen means a shepherd is where we get our word pastor from. And it emphasizes and outlines pastoral duties. That is true. That's where they got the name pastorals, although that wasn't just a couple hundred years ago that they began to be called that. The main pastoral duties that are outlined in First and Second Timothy and Titus were to defend sound doctrine and to maintain sound discipline. To defend sound doctrine, to maintain sound discipline. But more than pastoral duties are in view in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, these letters speak to the entirety of the church, and they speak of church life. In fact, Paul states his purpose in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that, and here's the purpose statement, so that one ought to know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and supporter of the truth. Now, the pastoral epistles are primarily practical rather than theological. The emphasis lies rather than on the defense of doctrine, but um, not so much on the defense of doctrine uh, or its explanation, but rather what do we do with the doctrine that we know. Uh, Timothy and Titus, this, these, these epistles were written after they'd been with Paul quite some time, these are applicational epistles. Now, there is doctrinal information in it, to be sure. There, there are biblical, scriptural truths uh, that are in it, to be sure. But there's a lot of how we apply those particular truths in church life as well. First Timothy deals with two aspects of the subject of the local church. The life of the church and the leadership of the church. The life of the church and the leadership of the church. Titus, which we'll study next elaborates on the leadership of the church, and Second uh, Timothy elaborates on the life of the church. So you see how it works? First Timothy, which was written first, we understand, the life and the leadership. Titus emphasizes the leadership, and then he comes back in Second Timothy and emphasizes the life of the church. There are some distinctively doctrinal sections in these epistles, but they are fewer in number 
uh, to the applicational sections. So in 1 Timothy, Paul taught that the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world. He also taught that the function of church leaders is to expound God's truth in the church. Now, did you catch that? It was a little pithy. Let me say it again. The function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world. Another way to put that is to fulfill the Great Commission, to take Christianity from in here and tell it to people who are out there. That's the function of the local church, or at least the function of the local church as we learn in 1 Timothy. But the function of leadership within the local church is to proclaim God's truth in here, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the leadership of the local church proclaims God's truth in here so that we can all go out there and proclaim God's truth. Does that make sense? I hope it does, because sometimes in Christianity we get that backwards. Sometimes we think, well, we've got professional ministers uh, I'm not going to the hospital to see that person. That's the pastor's job. He can go. Or that's the assistant pastor's job. They can go. No, it's all of our jobs to do something like that. You know, I'm not going to give them the gospel. That's the pastor's job to do that. I'm going to call the pastor let him give them the gospel. No, see, if we're doing it right, I should be training you how to give someone the gospel so you can go out there and do that. That's the, that's the idea. So the, the function of the local, ch- local church is to proclaim God's truth out there, but the function of church leadership is to bring, proclaim God's truth in here. So that we're equipped to go out there and do the things that we're supposed to do. That's the same thing Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, concerning the church universal, which was the subject there. The saints are to do the work of the ministry, and gifted men, apostles and prophets and so forth, according to Ephesians 4, are to equip the saints for the work. And then in 1 Timothy, he applies principles that he spoke to the universal church in Ephesians to the local church here um, same group to the to the Ephesians in in First Timothy. That's where Timothy was ministering. The local church exists to support and display the light of the testimony of believers, not only individually but corporately. Now that may not be what your idea of a local church was. In fact, uh, a lot of people have unrealistic and unfulfilled, even unrealized expectations when it comes to what the function of a local church is. In fact, you talk to a hundred different Christians out on the street and give them a survey and ask them to fill out, what should a local church be doing? What is the primary purpose of the local church? And you're going to get answers that are all over the map. And the problem with many in local churches today is that unrealized expectations lead to frustration and unhappiness. Whether it's a relationship like marriage or a friendship, a job or a vacation or a local church. If you, have, if you have these expectations and this is what happens and it doesn't match what your expectations were, then, then oftentimes that leads to frustration. There's a lot of frustration in Christianity today because our expectations, I'm talking about as the church universal, our expectations, in my view, are not necessarily lining up with what Paul taught Timothy that the expectations of a local church should be. Again, this is what Paul teaches Timothy, the function of the local church is. That the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth to the world. And the function of the leadership in the local church is to proclaim God's truth to you. Now that doesn't match up, does it? In many cases. That's the way we're, that's, we're doing the best we can under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, to design... And to execute that here as best we can, no local church is perfect. 
Let me go ahead and get that on tape. You're taping this? No local church is perfect. And Pine Valley is a local church, so Pine Valley is not perfect. I'm glad we got somebody can go ahead and say that so we can get past the whole idea of any local church being perfect. But we need, if we're going to meet the expectations that God has for us, then our expectations need to be biblical expectations. And, and there's a, we have enough, as they used to say, to say grace over here. We don't need to start judging other churches to see if they're meeting the expectations. We need to make sure that we're doing it, though. We need to make, we need to make certain that our, our primary thrust is the proclamation of God's truth out there and in here. That's the primary thrust of the local church. There are other things that we do to be sure, but that's the primary thrust. We'll say, well, what about missions? That makes my case. That the, the primary thrust of missions is to proclaim God's truth out there. You know, um, now, now, whether bowling alleys and, and, and ping pong tables and all that stuff, that's part of it. It depends on how that local church is working through the purpose of proclaiming God's truth inside and outside. And maybe that fits in. You know, Maybe the bowling alley is a place where they realize people can come and gather and Talk about God's truth. If that's the way they want to do it, that's okay. But I would propose to you that a, a nightclub isn't going to cut it. Here I said we're not going to judge, but I will. I won't tell you the church. But, but I know of a church in the northern part of town that has spent a lot of money recreating a nightclub. Neon lights and everything. So that the young people could go to that nightclub, non-alcoholic, and learn how to be clubbers, I guess. I'm not sure exactly what the point is. But that's exactly what you're teaching them. By doing that, I'm appalled at that, and I think it's a little difficult to match that up with what Paul says here. Now, all I'm asking you is this. Let me back. I'll, I'll say that when, I, when I've had a hard day in ministry, and every now and then one will come up as a more difficult day than another, you know what I read at night? You know what I go to bed reading? I, I go to bed reading First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And the reason I do that is because those are my marching orders. That's what I'm told to do. And I go back and I remind myself what my boss told me to do. And I match up and said, well, was, was what I did that day, did it line up with that? Not perfectly, of course. Nobody's, nobody is going, to be, is going to execute it perfectly. But if it lined up with that, then I'm okay with it. If it didn't, then I'm not. And you may be upset with me, but if he's okay with me, then I'm okay with that. On the other hand, if you're happy with me and he's upset, I'm not okay with that. You, you see, I'm, I'm trying to get us a biblical grid for what goes on at the local church. And the biblical grid is this. We're to, we are to proclaim God's truth out there, and we're to teach God's truth. The leadership is to teach God's truth in here. Now, and it's not some sort of cold, dry, academic subject. Howard Hendricks said one time that it is, the, the Word of God is the most active, living, powerful message in the world. It's the most exciting message in the world, and it is a sin to make it boring. It's, it's life-giving. That's got to be our primary thrust. And that's the way that we've set the, this ministry up. And that goes all the way from the, the kids' ministries all the way up into adult ministries. As, as, as long as the kids are old enough to be able to put a sentence together and, and to learn, then that's, then that's when we're going to start uh, proclaiming that to them. Hopefully in, a, in an exciting way, in a way that makes them want to come back and learn, uh, not, in a, uh, not in a way that is um, sinful. Because it's sinful to take an exciting subject and make it boring when it's life-giving. So, we need to have realistic expectations, and those realistic expectations come from the Word itself, and come from primarily the pastoral epistles. Now, the local church, Paul's going to warn us in this epistle, should be 
should beware of false doctrines. You see, if it's our task to take God's truth and proclaim it out there, and if it's the task of the leadership to proclaim God's truth in here, then you would think that one of the worst things that could happen is for false doctrine to creep in. Would it not be? Because that pollutes the whole thing. And how much false doctrine does that have to be to pollute the whole thing? Well, I don't know. You know I mean, if, if you had a, 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 a gallon jug of water and you put just a tiny bit of botulism in it, are you drinking it? I'm not, because it can easily contaminate the entire system. So we have to be careful. We don't have to be unreasonable about it. We don't have to be mean-spirited about it, but we've got to be careful about it. Because sometimes people make honest mistakes. And a lot of people get called heretics that aren't heretics at all. They just, they're just taking a different view, a different legitimate view on a passage than you might happen to take. But there are things that are out and out heresies. And we'll study some of those as we go on. So by, when I talk about uh, false doctrine, I'm talking about any doctrine that deviates from the essential teaching of the faith. You know, somebody comes in and says, Jesus Christ was not God. Well, that's a false doctrine. <laughs> you get it? You know, if, Jesus, if somebody comes in and says, Jesus Christ was crucified on Wednesday and not Friday, that's not a false doctrine. Okay, that's an opinion based upon some chronologies. So, so we have to draw the line somewhere with regard to reasonableness. And that's why Paul says in the first part of this that, that he's, Timothy is to instruct certain men not to teach these strange doctrines or pay attention to, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The reason that Paul couldn't allow in all these trivialities is because it took away from the strength of the message. You see? It, it wasn't out of meanness. It's out of common sense. Okay. There can be no compromise when it comes to the truth of God's Word. We're told not to argue over trivial things, but I want to remind you, doctrinal truth is not a trivial thing. And even when we do speak the truth, we should speak the truth in love. And if I could be so bold, even when we do argue, we should argue in love. Now, second, the church should be aware of a failure in prayer. We should beware of a failure in prayer. This will hinder both our witness to the world and our own spiritual growth. And it is this second charge to beware of a failure in prayer uh, that Paul focuses on as chapter 2 begins. So again, I'd ask you to read along with me or listen along with me if you prefer as Paul begins chapter 2 with the second charge to beware of a failure in prayer. First of all, then, I urge entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, as Paul opens this verse, as he opens the second chapter, he says, first of all. Now, he's underlining the importance of the Godward aspect of ministry in the church. Paul didn't mean by saying, first of all, that this is the very first thing that we should do every time we gather together. Now, logically, reasonably, that's what we do, because we need to ask God's blessing on our time together. We need to make sure we're walking in fellowship with him before we, we engage in any ministry activity. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about in terms of, watch, this is going to blow you away, I think, importance. Oops. <laughs> you know, so we missed that one. We missed it somehow. Some, somehow, we, I had a friend that visited our church several years back. sat on this wall over here when we had the table set up differently. And I asked another friend, which I never should do, well, how did my first friend, how did he enjoy the service? He said he really liked the teaching part. He said he's never coming back. I said, really? Why is he never coming back? He said, because he's not sent through another prayer meeting. 
us. Really? Really? He said, no, I don't, I don't need the, the prayer time. I want the meat of the word. Well, that's great, but I'm telling you, it's the meat of the word they just got through telling us protos, the very first thing in terms of not timing but importance. There's nothing that you're going to do in your spiritual life every day that's more important than your time that you spend in prayer with God. And that's coming from somebody whose who's function in the body of Christ is to teach you the word. There's nothing more important, according to the word, <laughs> that we're purporting to learn. There's nothing more important than the time we spend in prayer. Now, that doesn't mean, see, sometimes we, we have an either-or attitude. It doesn't mean that it's either prayer or the word. It's either A or B. Why can't it be A and B? Why can't it be prayer and the Word? Why does it have to be one or the other? But, and sometimes we think that way. But Paul is saying, first of all, in the way that he phrases this, he's not phrasing in terms of time, but in terms of, of importance, that whenever we assemble, it is an important thing for us to do to pray. I can't think, maybe sometimes we do, and if you, if you can remember one or two or a dozen, whatever, come and tell me afterwards, don't interrupt it now, make me look bad. But I, I don't remember very many times at all that we've gathered together for functioning, we haven't prayed. Whether it's to eat a meal, we, we pray, we thank God for the meal, or, or, uh, or our Bible study, we would never have a Bible study without prayer as well. And then we have other opportunities to pray that are just specifically for that. There's a ladies' prayer meeting each month and a men's prayer meeting each month. There's a missionary prayer meeting each month. There's a, a prayer meeting before each Sunday morning class, and there's been more and more and more people attend that. I'm thrilled by that because that, that tells us something about spiritual health of a church. I appreciate you getting there early enough to do that when you can. It's upstairs in room 241 on Sundays before we start church. It's a very, very important time. We have to go and ask God to bless what's about to happen. Otherwise, we're... We're swimming upstream without a paddle. We're, 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 we're trying to do God's work apart from God's impairment, and it's not going to work. So what he's speaking of here is, is the primary importance of prayer in the totality of the ministry of the church. Remember, this is written so that we might know how we're to function within the local church. First of all, we should pray. Now, he's already said that we should be aware of false doctrine and so forth, but, but in terms of, of uh, priority... Prayer is a priority. And it's not just an idea that he had. Paul just wasn't kind of giving you some random thoughts. Well, maybe this, you know, and then I think I'll finish up with that. No, he says, I urge you. This term parakaleo is not just a, it's not just a passing term. He, he uses this on purpose. This is extremely important to Paul. Paul's prayer life was significant. And Paul, I believe for all my being, that Paul modeled his prayer life after our Lord's prayer life. Now watch, I want you to think about something. If, if you ever want to, to do something for your own devotional studies and you kind of run out of the things that excite you, I'd, I'd invite you to do this. As soon as you get bored with Bible study, do this. If you get bored with prayer, do this. Go back and look through the Gospels. Well, first of all, confess it because it's a, it's a sin to become bored with, with the God's revelation. But go back through the Gospels and, and write down every time you see that Jesus prayed. And then look where he was when he prayed. Look, look at the priority that he gave it. And what you're going to find is many times Jesus goes to a lonely place before anyone else has ever gotten up. The lonely place is probably right outside the city. And spends time with his heavenly father, just he and his father. I think that's pretty significant. Now, a lonely place for us, may, we may have to go halfway from here to San Antonio to get to, to, get to a lonely place. But, but there's got to be some place of quiet that you have where you're not going to be interrupted, where you can go on a daily basis and spend time with your Father. 
And for some of you, it's going to be first thing in the morning. Others, some of you are not morning people, and morning people make you feel guilty about not getting up at 5 or 4 like Martin Luther did and do all your praying. Well, then there may be some time at lunch. There may be some time in the evening, but whatever the time is, you set that time aside, and I'm sure that the apostle did it, modeling his prayer life after our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is very important to him. That's why he says, I urge you to do this. I urge you. It's no small thing. This is vital. It's not optional. It's essential to your spiritual life. Now, you may can take a test. I could give you a test that we give some of the theology students at CBS. I could bring it in there, and maybe you could, without ever even taking the course, you could make it 80 or 85 on that test. And you may be patting yourself on the back for being able to do that. But if your prayer life's not what it ought to be, I would keep that patent to a minimum. Because Paul says, first of all. First of all, I urge that there's four things. Prayers, or entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving, be made on behalf of all men. First, we're going to see the four things that he asks, and then who he asks it for, or rather, for whom does he ask this. There's four things. These terms are not synonymous terms necessarily, but they are related terms. They're, they're close to synonyms. Uh, Dasis, which is, that's the first thing that he brings up. Entreaties. Uh, that, this is something that's asked with urgency based upon a presumed need. You've made those, haven't you? Maybe you've even made some entreaties to God today. You made some very intense prayers. You made, well, if we were to use James's terminology, fervent prayers. Something, something is, in, is going on in your life or the life of someone that you love, and it's, uh, and it's troubling you. And, and you make a, an intense petition for that. That's the first thing that, that Paul brings up. The second thing, actually, is just the word for prayers, and that's the way it's translated in the New American Standard, it's to speak or make requests of God. And frankly, there's some requests we make of God that, that in our own lives carry more urgency than others. You don't have to feel guilty about that. There's some people that we know better than others. So you're going to have a more of an emotional attachment than you would praying for one person than you would for someone else. Uh, the third word that's translated petitions in New American Standards means to speak to someone on behalf of someone else. You see, I, I may make a request of God for me, but if I'm going to make a, a petition, then I may make a request of God for you or on your behalf. You know, and we're going to do that in just a few minutes when we have our prayer time. We've got a whole list of people that we're going to make petition for. And then finally, the, the word that is translated uh, thanksgivings is just that. It means to express thanksgiving for benefits or blessings. Now, by using these related terms, again, not synonymous terms, they're close, Paul is evidently emphasizing the importance of praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Prayer is so important because it invites God into the situation that we pray about and secures His working on behalf of those who are in need. The most obvious is, is, Father, would you bless the outreach ministries of Pine Valley Bible Church? We can do that, right? Nobody has a problem with doing that. But what about the situation with your son or your daughter or your grandson? You know, uh, what, what if they've gotten into drugs? Or what if, they're, what if they're dating somebody you don't particularly care for? Or what if, what, if, what if they're taking a job or moving to a part of the country that, that you, you sense some sort of danger in that? This is, uh, this is pure and good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior to invite God into that situation. 
rather than just saying, as, as some of uh, maybe all of us have done at one time or another, no, I'll take care of that. I'll make a few phone calls. You know, I'll write, I'll write a check. We'll see what we can do about that. I used to be Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> you know, or, earlier on, before I went into ministry, if something came up, people would call me, you know, usually family members or whatever, and, Bruce, can you take care of this? You bet. I'll, I'll make a call. I'll take care of that. No problem. And, and guess what? Mr. Fix-It doesn't work if you're going to be in the ministry. God had to take his, his divine baseball bat and break both of my legs before I realized it, that I wasn't smart enough, didn't have enough money, didn't have enough ingenuity to be Mr. Fix-It. There's too many problems out there. <laughs> if there was just one or two, it might, might be fine, but it, it wouldn't be even then. I say that euphemistically. But, but, if, but you might think that you can handle it, but then multiply that by 100. And then multiply that by a couple hundred or, or several hundred, and you realize you can't come close to handling even the first one. And so then you pour that request out to God. Say, Father, would you please intervene in this situation? And God says, right then, I got you just exactly where I wanted you in the first place. Wouldn't have had to break your legs if you'd have had that in mind to begin with. I would hope that you don't have to get your legs broken before you realize. I'm talking about metaphorically. Before you realize that God's got to be involved in all of it. And that thing that's keeping you awake at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe it, maybe it didn't keep you awake until that time, but you woke up. You know that times, when, and then you start looping that through your mind, you can't go back to sleep. How about trying something novel and then turn it over to God? And then when you still can't go to sleep 30 minutes later because you, you start looping again, then turn it back over to him again. It's okay. He knows what's going on in your mind. He wants that problem. He realizes he can do it, and you can't. Have you ever been in that situation? You know, somebody's doing something, and you, you know, if they just ask me, I can fix that real quick. I can do that. I can put that doorknob in, or I can, I can take care of that. And they just won't ask you. They're too stubborn. Well, God's sitting there tapping his foot, waiting for us to ask him. Just ask him. Invite him in to the situation. In response to the request of his people, God will do the things that he will not do if we don't ask. Some people have a wrong idea about prayer. Some people say, listen, it's all ordained anyway, right? God knows the beginning from the end. He already knows what he's going to do. What good is it going to do for me to pray? I'll tell you in the most basic, simple way that I can tell you. He also knew that you would pray for it or you wouldn't pray for it before you ever did. And he takes that into account in the outworking of his purpose. Yes, he knew a long time ago how things were going to work out, but he also knew a long time ago whether you were going to pray about it. And it's an incredible privilege we have as creatures not to manipulate God, but to be involved in that process. It's a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's, it's, it's the next generation of nuclear weapon. It's beyond whatever that next generation would be. And we keep it holstered much and we ought not to do that so that's why Paul says first of all this is how important that is now in this verse Paul says that these prayers entreaties petitions and thanksgiving should be made on behalf of all men now he's going to return to that phrase in verse 4 who desires all men to be saved now what Paul is saying here is not that we can pray for every single person on the planet that's that's a physical impossibility I don't imagine if you prayed started with a list, you wouldn't be able to make it from now to the rest of your life, just, just mentioning their names. But what he's meaning here is that we pray for all categories of men. There is no category of person that we say, I'm not praying for them. Now watch, this is where it gets a little tough. This is where tonight's going to get tough. There's no category of person that we say, I'm not praying for them. Now I want you to think of somebody right now. Do it without sinning. I want you to think about somebody right now in your mind. Don't say it out loud. Don't write it down. Don't lean over and tell your husband or your wife who it is. Think about somebody right now you really don't want to pray for. 
Okay, that's enough time. You probably already came into your mind. I got two or three. <laughs> and and, there, and if I was to ask you, and I'm not going to, but if I was to ask you to, to then start thinking about the reasons you wouldn't want to pray for them, perhaps they have some character flaw. They may, maybe done something to you. Maybe they've done something to our country. You know, maybe they've attacked our country. There, there's a lot of reasons why we would not want to pray for somebody. And we may say, well, you know what? Paul can't mean that. I mean, let's just go to the big ones. He can't mean that we're supposed to pray for Zarqawi, can he? That person who beheaded the, you know, these, these innocent uh, hostages that they have on videotape. He can't mean that we're to pray for him. Well, actually, there's no out clause here. It says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Now, the reason I say there's no out clause is because of what happens in verse 2. He says, for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may live a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, the king, although he never would have been called that by Roman citizens, at least living in Rome, at the time was Nero. He was the emperor. The, the Romans had this funny thing. They didn't like to call each other king uh, because of some things that happened in their history way back. But this is who Paul's referring to. He's referring to Nero. Um, he was an unbeliever. He was, as I've told you before, and I'm not going to go back into it tonight, one of the, the worst human beings who's ever lived. One of the most immoral people who has ever lived. And if you are inclined, it would be good for you to go back, because for time's sake, we're not going to do it tonight. Go back and just read some things about Nero. You know, some people say that a, a basic knowledge of history is irrelevant to your spiritual life. And I say no, no, and another thousand times beyond that, no, that is not the truth. Because if you, if you know something, just a little bit about Roman history, just a little bit, you'll know the impact of what Paul just said. And you'll realize that people in Ephesus who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would, would know immediately. I, I could use names, but I don't want to get political. I mean, I, I, could, I could throw out some names right now, even, even in American politics. You're to pray for this person. And a lot of us are going to say, no way. That guy was an enemy of the cross. You realize what he did. That's what I like. That's what I love about Master Media. Larry Poland and Master Media so much. They don't do that. They take a list of people that I frankly don't want to pray for. Cindy puts that thing on the refrigerator with those magnets, and this is who we're praying for today. Uh, him? Do you realize what he did? Have you seen that film? Have you seen how he blasphemed our Lord? That's the same type of thing that these people have done with Nero. Now you know that current history. But if, but if you had some basic knowledge of Roman history, you'd realize what a bad guy Nero was. Worse than just about anybody you could possibly think about. You, you want to bring up Osama bin Laden? I'll put Nero right up against him. <coughs> and won't blink. This was a bad guy. Paul says, yeah, we're supposed to pray for him. That's hard to do. There's, there's no out there. Now, there's a reason why. First, all, and, and he's going to tell us in next week's lesson that he desires all men to be saved. So part of this prayer is for their salvation. Because that's what God wants. You see, don't you want what God wants? Supposed to. Supposed to. We're supposed to, right? Our desires are supposed to match up with his desires. His desires that Osama bin Laden becomes saved. Now, who's wrong? Who, who's sinning here if, if we know that that's God's desire that Osama bin Laden be saved, but I'm not going to pray for him because I want him in hell. And you're thinking, and I'll say it, there's a part of me that wants him in hell because of what he did and what he intends to continue doing. But there's one person that doesn't want him in hell, and that's God. 
This is a hard lesson. You think it's hard to listen to, it's hard for me to prepare it. Because this goes against our flesh. This goes against our sin nature. God wants him in heaven, we should want him in heaven as well. If our desire is going to match up with God's desires. Now there's a reason too why this should happen. And that is that that, uh, Paul understood that if these Roman leaders became believers, it's going to make it much easier for the spread of the gospel to occur all throughout the Roman world. And even if they didn't become believers, but if they, if, they were, if they were prayed for, then they may lay off of some of the persecution of Christians. Again, I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with Master Media, but the way they go and they introduce themselves to actor X, Y, and Z and producer A, B, and C, they just, they just send them a little letter saying, hey, listen, we're praying for you this, this week, or we're praying for you today. There's, there's going to be two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand. Christians all over the United States that are just praying for you today, we just want you to, want you to know that. And not in, a, not in a, hey, would you curse this guy, not in one of those imprecatory prayer kind of things. You know, a really serious prayer. And you know what? Larry, Larry Poland will tell you, a lot of them are softened just by knowing that somebody's praying for them. How can you get mad at that? Unless you're really hardcore. Somebody says, hey, listen, I've been praying for you. Anything special I can pray for you? How many people are going to turn around and say, get out of here? There's going to be a few. But it softens the heart of many. And so Paul says there's a reason for this, for kings and all who are in authority. Now, this is not just the emperor, but those who are underneath the emperor in authority. In order that we may live, a, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We're not praying primarily for our own personal ease and enjoyment, but we're praying for this kind of tranquility so that we can carry out what Paul has told us to do out there. It's one thing to have the freedom to do it in here, but... What about to have the freedom to do it out there? See, just in here would just be selfish. That's what that would be. But if we don't take what we learn in here and tell it to somebody out there, then something, there's a disconnect. And so Paul wants that to happen. And so and also he wants this to happen as well. In order for that, we have to be able to, to uh, have some sort of order in government. Now, obviously, the type of government under which people live influences and affects their spiritual life and welfare. We've been blessed. We weren't founded as a Christian nation. That's true. But we were founded as a nation by people who were primarily Christian in their worldview. And if they weren't Christian in their worldview, like Jefferson or, or Franklin, they were at least deistic in their worldview, and they, they valued Christian principles. And so this is, what Paul, this is what Paul tells us. The word godliness refers to an attitude of reverence for God based upon uh, knowledge of God. It's a word that we all probably ought to here you go. We all ought to aspire to. And most of us don't don't uh, achieve the level of that that we would prefer to in this life. It's a, it's a favorite word of Paul. He uses it 10 times in the pastoral epistles. This is the first time that he's used it, but it'll come up nine more times in our study of first second Timothy and Titus. Finally, dignity refers to the outward manifestation of godliness in righteous behavior. Now in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Who are you trying to please? If you're trying to please me, you're in big trouble. If, if I'm trying to please you, I'm in big trouble as well. But if, if we're attempting to match up our desires with God's desires if we're going to match our expectations of a, of, of a church up with his expectations of a church, not having them, this is mine, this is his, you're going to be frustrated all day long with that. You'll be unhappy. 
But if we match up his expectations with ours, or ours with his, rather, we match up ours with his, if we match up our desires with his desires, then we're going to be a, a people of contentment, a people of happiness, a people who are fulfilling the Great Commissions. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. As in modern times, some in the Ephesian church were apparently prepared to question the validity of a prayer for the salvation of all men. And so Paul defended his instructions by pointing out that this is a prayer that would please God. Literally, the the Greek text says, such a prayer is acceptable before God or in the presence of God. Now, many prayers are unacceptable. That's that's true. We can pray for things that are not going to be answered at all. But but this one will be. Now, we can't influence, we can't um, coerce someone's volition. But we certainly can pray uh, for their salvation in the sense that God would, would bring the gospel to them. That the Holy Spirit would soften their hearts so that they would give it a hearing. That the gospel presentation would be made in a very accurate way. There are a lot of things that we can do. And that's what Paul offers us uh, in our lesson tonight as uh, that which we should do.